this computer. There we go. All right, we're up and running. Okay, what happened? Morning, Alan. I lost you. I lost Good everybody. morning. You lost me? I lost everybody. I don't know what I clicked. Let me see if I can. Uh -oh. I think I'm going to have to start over. We, we can, can hear you. Probably just on a different screen. Can you hear us? I can hear you, but I don't know what happened because it's it says post attendos. So I'm change your me, screen maybe so you view because we can hear there. you and see you. There. Are we back? I got, I got you back. <laughs> Good. All right. Let's pray. Name the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind with your light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the gospel teaching. Implant in us also fear of the blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, who is Son of glory with thy Father was from everlasting, and then all holy, good and life-giving spirit, now and ever, the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Let's go in there. One of the wheels broke off my chair, so I have to be careful I don't fall today. <laughs> <laughs> and go for the other five. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just... Sit on the floor like it can't. I know. <laughs> so, Alan, how's the home remodel? Is the kitchen done? Wow. Oh, beautiful. I love it. It's getting there. We don't have the cupboards on everything, but. Nice. How wonderful. Beautiful. Congratulations. <laughs> it's a kitchen. <laughs> It's a kitchen. <laughs> and then this. You can't hear him. Uh, he muted. Unmute, Alan. He's got his speaker off. You've got your speaker off. Oh, no. No. Hit your uh, unmute again. There we go. There. Yeah, we got uh, um, our patio. Oh, and nice! Goes down to the backyard, and then oh, wonderful. this this side um, has a grilling station and a sitting area. And there's a ramp um, that goes to the driveway that comes up. the The ramp was built too steep. I said, I can't push a, um, a uh, wheelchair or a walker up that ramp, so they had to redo it. <laughs> it's a, it's a little better. Good planning ahead. Yep. Yeah. Everything we need is on this floor. I don't have to go upstairs or go downstairs. Nice. Beautiful. Good morning, Randy. iPad Randy. <laughs> Hi, Randy. <laughs> Must be muted too. Oh, he's still connecting. Your your name looks pretty good today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are in chapter 20. I believe we are at verse 7. Am I correct? Yeah. So, Linda, you'll be very happy to know this is the last of the yucky stuff. 
Unmute, unmute so we can hear you. You told me the yucky stuff was done three chapters ago. <laughs> there really isn't much yucky stuff. But it really okay. is almost over of any yucky stuff. Wow. Okay, nice. where are we now? Chapter, chapter 20, what? Verse 7. Where are we? Nice Christmas tree, Linda. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> oh, you have a red halo now. There's Randy. She uh -oh. does. What is she that? Does. You have a red what halo. What is that? <laughs> you scrambled, Linda. <laughs> okay. All right. So just to go back, just a few verses because we're going to. Um, we talked a lot last time about this thousand-year reign of Christ, this millennial idea that different people have different ideas on. Um, I would say the consensus of the of the Orthodox, the early writers, that it was the time of the church, but there's a lot of unclarity what it means. But what's clear is that the real person on the throne is Christ. No matter what you see and what things appear, Christ is reigning. The only question is in what way and in how can he be seen as reigning? That's the part that's not debated. What's debated is, is it a literal reign? Does he come down and literally run the earth? All people have different ideas there. But that's the background for what we're going to go into today in verse 7, chapter 20. So would somebody read for us? Let's tackle 7 through 10. When, I'll read it. Oh, go okay. ahead, Randy. That'd be great. Okay. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sands of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Did you want me to read 10 too? Yeah, please. Okay. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So earlier on, we had the beast and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire. Now we're seeing the devil being thrown in. So the devil was referred to at different points as the dragon. He's sort of the, the instigation of all the others that are going to be uh, sort of arrayed against God. Starts with the devil, and then he gets the beast involved, and the false prophet, and the other prophets. And But the devil is the main one. He's the one who starts all that. So let's go back a little bit and, and tackle this. Um, so this thousand years, whatever it means, it ends, and Satan is loosed, and you can see in where it's just a short time. And it actually, back... And before we heard, I was just to be a very short time where he'll be released at the end. And what does he do? He comes out to deceive the nations. Remember what we said all along. One of the main messages, messages of Revelation is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Over and over we heard that. And so here we know who the deceiver is. This, the devil is the deceiver. And because he deceived the nations which are at the four corners of the earth. In other words, the whole earth, not necessarily everyone in it, but his deception went everywhere. Okay? 
Then you have this very interesting reference, Gog and Magog, or Magog, to gather them for battle. So he's gathering all the nations he's deceiving, and he's naming them here, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So it's a huge army array. Now, who is Gog and Magog? Those people or cities? That's the or question. And we really don't know. The names come a couple times in the Old Testament. Uh, they come up in Genesis a little bit. They come up in Ezekiel especially. The only thing in common is that there's this idea of these are either cities or people who go against God's people. That's that's their common thread in the Old Testament. They're not. It's not. They're not primary. They're not named in a lot of places. Uh, very briefly in a couple of different books, but the idea is that these are God's enemies. And so just like we've had other Old Testament references, Babylon, which aren't necessarily literally Babylon, but it's an Old Testament idea thrown into a New Testament context. And so, I just Googled it. So what'd you find out? Gog and Magog appear in the Hebrew Bible and Quran as individuals, tribes, or lands. In Ezekiel 38, Gog is an individual, and Magog is his land. In Genesis 10, Magog is a man, but no Gog is mentioned. That was on Wikipedia. <laughs> well, then you know it's true. Deacon, <laughs> <laughs> anything you want to add of your awareness of Gog and Magog? Um no, Father, just the uh, fact that I believe it was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, in, in the um, dispensational eschatology of many Protestants, uh, Gog and Magog are not de clearly defined, but they are assumed to be the people and the nations north of Jerusalem who come against God's city and God's people after the millennium for one final battle. But they think they're going to be fighting humankind for the possession of a city. But in fact, they end up being arrayed against God and his, and his armies. And uh, we'll find out here in a minute what, uh, what happens. But it's a matter that... Uh, um, <clears throat> That's how, you know, it's been explained to me in time past. Right. So because they come from the north, in, in modern times, at least until the early 90s, a lot of these modern interpreters said, oh, that's Russia. That's a Soviet Union coming in. And, you know, we know historically, especially those of us that uh, families hail from the Middle East, Russia has been um, involved in the Middle East for centuries. Only as Orthodox, we tend to have a little more fail view. Of course, we didn't have a fail view of the Soviets when they were in charge. But uh, for example, in, in Syria, in recent times, you know, of course, in America, Syria is, you know, a backwards country and the Russians are always evil. But if you talk to the Syrians living in Syria, they, they tell you that they have a little bit different view of, of Russia. But anyway, back in the... 60s and 70s and 80s that a lot of folks said oh look Gog and Magog that's Russia coming in from the north because in the Old Testament that's where they came from they were north of the people north of the the land of Israel 
But I think for our purposes, we just need to know that these were enemies of God coming to battle. Um, and then we're going to see very quick. You, you see this, this lead up. Look at verse 7, 8, and 9. This big lead up of power. So Satan is released. He deceives all the nations. They're at the four corners of the earth. Gathers them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Imagine if somebody took you out to the beach and said, number the sand, not just on this beach, but every beach. Okay? So a huge buildup. They marched up over the broad earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And you think, okay, it's leading up for this great victory of this massive army built up, numbering like the sands of the sea. And then, just like that, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. <laughs> Done. So if, if any of you have read the Lord of the Rings books or seen the movies, you might remember that final scene where it looks like, you know, oh, there's just no way they're going to survive. And then all of a sudden these huge forces come in and very quickly conquer over <clears throat> the enemies. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. The beast and the false prophet were. They already were thrown in. And they were tormented day and night forever. By the way, let me uh, remind you that in the Bible, uh, sometimes what's referred here in, in Revelation as the lake of fire, sometimes referred to as Gehenna. We talked about that a long time ago, that Gehenna was this burning trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem where people would go and dump their garbage and they dump it over the wall and because it was constantly fed with people dumping their garbage it was a constant smoldering fire stinking heap of, of fire and smoke and and you know stench that was one uh, image of it but in the bible that was always designed not for people that was assigned as a place of punishment for the ones who originally rebelled against God, which is, of course, Satan. He's the, he's the enemy with a capital E. Whenever the Bible talks about the enemy or the church fathers about the enemy, it's the devil. <clears throat> and here you can see how really outmatched the devil always is. We've talked about this before, how temptation can feel very powerful. Here's Satan with all of the power he can conjure up from the whole earth. And in one phrase, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. <laughs> yeah. Before you even can think about, gee, how's this going to try? It's already over. <laughs> Battle's done. <clears throat> You'll also notice that it's, even though it'll be called the second death, is it death in the sense that we normally think of death? second death has no power. Look at, look at the end of verse 10. <clears throat> Is it death in the way we normally think of death? Might, might it be like the death of your soul or some connection like that? Well, there's no end, right? You think, okay, if somebody dies, this, this common idea of death is, a, is an ending. Like they don't exist anymore. Or if they are, they're not conscious. It's kind of like the death of death, which means that in this life, 
There is an escape from this life, which is death. It takes us to another realm, another reality. Uh, and what I understand it to be mean is that the second death is the spiritual death. It is the separation from God for all eternity from which there is no escape. There's no way out. Once that second death occurs, the state you're in, there that's the end of it. It doesn't mean death in the sense that we cease to exist or that life is over. It simply means that all of your options are done. Correct. Yeah, and you're going to see that this is that that same idea holds out on both sides. In other words, this is the reality of those who endure what we're going to be called what we'll call the second death, this this lake of fire. But the key point is it's not an end. It's an ongoing existence. And yes, you're right. There is no movement from it. And it says they're tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's not an ending. A lot of people, uh, when they think about the judgment, they think about either you go to heaven or you just die. You cease to exist. No, it's, it's, there's eternal life on both sides. The only difference is the quality and the, the experience. In fact, some of the fathers are going to argue based on this and other scriptures, that there really isn't um, what we might conceive of two different places. We think of heaven and hell, we think of them geographically even. You know, heaven's above, hell is below, heaven is paradise, hell is torture, they're separate, they're nowhere apart. But it's interesting, when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, remember the Lazarus was this man at the man's door, and he had covered with sores. The dogs licked the sores, and the man was feasting sumptuously every day. We heard this about a month or two ago. Um, when they both die, the rich man and Lazarus both die, they are in view of each other, right? The, the, the rich man who is now suffering in, in torment where all he wants is for Lazarus to dip his, his pinky in, in a drop of water and put it on his tongue, they can see each other. He can look up and he can see Lazarus, this poor man that was at his, his doorstep, now resting in Abraham's bosom, resting on the, on, the, on the chest of Abraham. So they're aware of each other. So which, this is uh, another reason why some of the fathers said that really our ideas of heaven and hell aren't distinct and separate they would describe um really two different experiences of the same reality and we've had this this image of fire earlier on in the book um and fire the same fire does two different things depending on the condition of what is subjected to it right so you take a piece uh, you take a flame of fire and you take it to a piece of paper and it consumes that paper, utterly destroys it. But you take that fire to metal and it purifies it, it strengthens it. So this is one of the ideas that um, some of the fathers talked about that it's not, there aren't two different separate realities, same reality, but experienced that very differently, opposites, polar opposites, based on what uh, is being subjected to that experience. Let me read a couple quotes here. 
This is one commentary on this idea of Gog and Magog. The holy prophet Ezekiel also spoke concerning Gog and Magog, relating how evil persons perish in an evil way. These are certain nations that shall lead the nations of the time of the consummation. These nations do not at present exist, or they are certain nations which do not at present exist, but are called different names by the divine scriptures. These, therefore, will fight with that God-hated Satan against the servants of Christ. And all different ideas of, of what Gog and Gagog mean, Magog mean, but again, the idea, the common idea is that these are the enemies of God and that there really is no actual battle in the sense of a real battle where it's like, I wonder who's going to win. Any question on that section? Let's keep going. Let's tackle 11 through 15. Who would like to read? I'm happy to, Father. Thank you. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so if you go back to, we had at one point a scroll, early on in the book, we had a scroll and that scroll had seven seals. And then when the seventh seal was opened, we had seven trumpets and seven bowls. And we've had all of these unfolding. Um, what was the scroll? The scroll is the, the revelation, the covering of the end. And now we're, we're getting to the actual end. And the last thing that happens before it all sort of consummates, what, what uh, Andrew Caesarea called the great consummation, is the judgment. This is the end of human history, the end of the created world as we know it in terms of, of history. And th this is the, the end of all that began with Genesis. Okay, so we're, we're now at the tail end, not only of the book, but of the Bible. And so we're going to see how the whole story now ends. Now, any good story has an ending, right? And then what comes after the ending in a really good story? Like the moral or the epilogue? The epilogue, yeah. And the epilogue is sort of, um, here's how it all plays out. Sometimes you'll see this in movies where after the movie, especially a, a movie about history, they'll show you the picture of the character and this is what happened to them and they lived for so many years. It, it's sort of like where it all ended up once the story was over. But you'll notice that comes after the end of the story. Okay. 
So the judgment is the end of the story. This is where it's all going to lead up to in terms of what we've seen so far that we're going to see this beautiful epilogue, which is really not so much an ending, but the new beginning. So before we get there, we've got to, we've got to finish the actual ending and all of that leading up to judgment. Okay. Let's look at 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. What's the image there? What's that saying? Nobody was worthy to sit in the presence of God. Yeah, that this is the one who's sitting on the throne, whoever he is, we haven't identified him yet, but we, we have an idea who this is. He's so powerful, so mighty, so majestic, so whatever, that from his presence, Earth and sky fled. In other words, the creation. Um, nothing can stand. And yet, even though they flee, you can't. We don't know why they flee. Is it fear? Is it terror? Is it whatever? But there's no there's no place for them. In other words, there's nowhere to go. That's the might of the one who sits upon this throne. And again, think through the context. You're living in the first century when this book was written. Rome is arrayed against you. People are, the Christians are being killed left and right. It looks like you are the most powerless of all people. And yet here, the one that you serve is sitting upon the throne. And from his presence, even the earth and the sky flee away. But there's no place for them. There's no, no way to, nowhere to hide. And here comes the judgment. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged what was written in the books by what they had done. Um, we said early on that one of the messages of Revelation was a, an encouragement in the face of what? You know what that was? <laughs> no. Persecution and specifically martyrdom. That if you were in a situation where you're going to be persecuted for your faith, you're facing pain and torture and torment and um, ultimately, in the case of martyrdom, death. So over and against that threat and the fear of all of that, <clears throat> what Revelation has tried to do for us all along is to say, okay, that was awful, but we've got to counterbalance it to the point where that looks like the better choice. Right? You think about arrest and isolation and imprisonment and bodily torture and death. That's a huge thing you'd say, well, I would never want to choose that. So what is John trying to do in his, in his retelling the Revelation? The Revelation is to show you that there's something counterbalancing that, that when you keep adding that in, the persecution and martyrdom looks like the good choice, the better choice, the smart choice. Okay? And here we're seeing where how that we've seen that rebalancing all throughout one of which we just saw when when the battle is arrayed. So here you have the forces of God. But you've got all the corners of the earth and the sands of the sea and Gog and Magog. How are you going to counterbalance that? You've got to show that the side of God is always the better one. 
And who early on, whose names are written in the book of life? I can't remember what chapter that was. Did anybody I'll have to go back and look at that? Um, because all these books are open, which we know what they're in it. It says they're the deeds of what, what had, had been done by all the dead, everyone who had lived. Um, and then there's this other book of life. Who was written in the book of life? I'm going to go back and look. It was actually, I think, in chapter 2. here all of us in father michael's bible study are in it that's our hope <laughs> that's why we're here on a thursday morning right let's see it doesn't go back to the scroll does it no that's in chapter it was before that and i can't i can't remember exactly where it was i think it was in um in the letters to the churches. Here we go. This is um, chapter three. And uh, the beginning is the, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God. I know your works that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, therefore, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And he goes on about, uh, remember the, the things you received, hold fast, repent. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Somebody say something? I thought I heard somebody say. No, I was just kind of reading it the same way you were. Okay. So Sardis is the only message where that happened? Well, I know it's that, that's one place I remember hearing was in one of the letters. Um, and it may have come up earlier. I can't remember, but this idea of the book of life is we're going to have at the judgment, two books are going to be open, two sets of books. There's one book and then there's a whole set of books. In the big set of books, it's everything that we do. It says that the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. Okay. But then there's another book, which identifies as the book of life. In verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question is, how do you get your name written in the book of life? What are your guesses? Just based on what these verses are telling us. Just in, in verses uh, 12, 13, 14, 15 following christ and becoming a martyr or becoming a martyr so becoming a martyr that's one way that's been clear all throughout that if you accept martyrdom in other words if you look at that big balance and you are able to realize that the loss of your safety of your health and of even your life gets your name written in the book of life that's one of the ways okay 
Um, How about believing everything in the creed? Say again. Believing, believing everything that that we say in the creed. So that, that it, it's a good question because if you look at just these verses, we know by the whole book that martyrdom is is a, a guarantee, so to speak. Um, for all of us. Say for again. All of us? What do you mean martyrdom is a guarantee to who? So it, what, what he said back oh, in chapter three was, okay. What's that? That's a guaranteed way in. That doesn't mean we're all going to be martyrs. Correct. Right. In other words, one way to get your name written in the book of life is martyrdom. if you are offered martyrdom and you take it. Remember, go back to, to that chapter three again. It was about the, um, you know, there a few of them. Let me go back and read it here. Um, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Uh, that's not the part. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And we saw early on that those that were considered those who overcame, it was this ironic sense of overcoming. The ones who were under the altar, do you remember that from, I think it's chapter four or five, who are the ones under the altar saying, when will we be avenged? They were the bones of the martyrs. Right. Okay, and then later on, we had the 144,000. They were the martyrs. Then we had the, the one without number. All those who proved their allegiance to the lamb were the ones that followed him, literally. They endured what he endured. He was the faithful witness or the faithful martyr, and they were faithful martyrs to him based on their willingness to follow him even to death. All right, so what I want to make sure we're clear on is one way into the book of life is that acceptance of martyrdom. And I think we made Then we're judged, judged by what we have done. Or well, that, that's, that's sort of unclear because there are those that would argue that if you overcome, specifically through martyrdom, your names are written in the book of life, right? No, no. In other words, we're gonna we're gonna see. Hold on a second. Yeah, verse fifteen. Um, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown in like a fire. So you get your name written in the book of life one of two ways. One is you endure martyrdom, right? We're all clear on that one. Yes. What's the other way? Judged by what they had done, what what we have done. Right. So you take the account of your life, and some of those, once they're, the account of their life has been accounted for, some of them, their names are written in the book of life. Now, he doesn't say exactly what. So back to your, your suggestion, Deborah, maybe it is those who believe in what the creed says. He doesn't say. What he says is, 
they were judged by what was written in the books by what they had done. So you could so it's say- it's not what you think. What's that? It's not what you say, it's what you do. What you do, exactly. So if you, if you say you believe, then you're going to do things that show your loyalty, your connection, your obedience to the one that you say you serve. Now, here's, here's the interesting part. If your name is written in the book of life, again, two ways. One is martyrdom. The other way is the books are going to be opened and, and our lives will be examined. How <laughs> secure does that sound? Not very good. I mean, we all know <laughs> it's that. It's not very secure, does it? No. We're all sinners. Right. Now, by the way, our, our church is very clear that in confession, our sins are blotted out. Does somebody have a radio on or a TV? I think it's a, a delay in somebody's. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Sorry. In, in confession, the things that we repent of and confess, they're blotted out. Now, we don't use blotters much anymore. So who can explain to me how a blotter works? It, lifts it, it just lifts it off. It takes it away. Okay. So in other words, the things that we do that are sins that are written in those books that are going to be open on the judgment. Once we confess that sin, it is blotted out. That blotter comes and it, it is absorbs removed, it. no longer there. What's that? That's absorbed. Okay. With the, one of the psalms we hear in, in the Orthros, the six psalms, is as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And the implication there is when we repent, when we confess, whatever we've confessed is no longer in the book. All right. However, we know that we all sin. We sin all the time and we don't confess everything because either we don't want to confess it or we've forgotten about it or we didn't realize it whatever but what i'm trying to get to get to understand here is that the two ways we get in the book of life which of the two looks to be the better way by far well confession and martyrdom <laughs> so confession and repentance is 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 good randy you're right okay but is it as sure as martyrdom now if you were to no. confess Repent we, like of every said, sin and confess it. Yes, that's just as good. But no. we know what that's like. <laughs> on, on that particular statement, I have I've, I've often wondered about this one thing because I have a whole set of the the synexarion, you know, the saints of the day, and they give the long details. Yep. And, and I can't remember how many times. Um, a believer would look for for one of the soldiers to kill them so that they could be martyrs and enter into heaven and i thought why would why would you go to it when they're not even at your door why would i mean what is that i don't understand that part i mean now do you understand it <laughs> i don't understand i mean i understand you know that if if it came to your door that you hope that you would stand firm but why would you go out seeking someone you know 
to to jump up in front of them and say, hey, I'm a Christian and have them kill you. I mean, why would you do that on purpose? Yeah, and here's why I'd say there's an important distinction. The martyrs well. that did those kinds of things didn't seek their death. They sought to be a witness in the way that they felt needed to happen at that time. Um, but they weren't afraid of death. In other words, they didn't say, let me go get killed. That's always been seen actually as not a martyrdom. That's a manipulation. You're, okay. you're trying to achieve an outcome. What they did do was, even with the threat of that, they didn't shrink back from it. So you have saints who would go to the emperor and say, you, they would go to the emperor. They wouldn't wait to be found. They'd go to the emperor and say, you worship these beings of stone." that are dead. I worship the living God. Now, did they know that they had a likelihood of their death? Of course they did, but that wasn't the reason. The reason was their witness against the false God or the emperor preaching the false God. Don't the um, Muslims teach that martyrdom too is, is a um, way to get to the second life? Yes, and this is where you can see where, because a lot of people say, well, you know, the witness of the martyrs is powerful. Does that mean that Islamic martyrdom is just a powerful witness? But this is that distinction that Deborah is bringing up. A, a Muslim martyr will, uh, well, really, in a sense, commit suicide, right? The, the pilots on 9-11, they committed mm -hmm. suicide. And, and how many people, women and men, would go into the center of a plaza and with bombs on them and martyred themselves to kill other people. Right. And that's why we don't call that martyrdom. We call right. that suicide. Right. Which is a very serious thing because you have no chance to repent of it. Now, we know in modern day that some people commit suicide because of mental illness. We're not addressing that. I'm saying somebody who seeks what they would call martyrdom by what we call suicide. That's the main difference. Okay. Linda had her hand up there. Oh, sorry. Linda, do you still have your hand up? I, have a, I do have a question because now I'm getting... I do. <laughs> I have a question, Father, then from what Deborah was saying about why would you go seek, like she was... Say that, say again. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Now we can. Okay, my question was what Deborah had brought up. Are we supposed to be going to the like the emperor, not seeking our death, but witnessing in order to get into the good book? No, we're we're to be witnessing out of love for Christ, with disregard to what that means for our health and life. But it would be. Our actions, how we live our life, what, how we treat other people. And, am I correct? Correct. Because then you started getting into the yucky stuff again here. And, I, you know, it's like it was a fine line. Which way are we going here? Yeah. And so that, that whole idea of martyrdom, again, it's going to be continually throughout this book redefined not as the yucky way or the scary way. It's the really sure way. But we don't do it for that reason. We do it because we love Christ. Okay. 
So the idea is that we witness to Christ in whatever way our circumstance and um, whatever situation we're in. For Let me give you an example. Someday, a reporter is going to show up to St. Nicholas, and he's going to say, I want to talk to the priest. And he's going to want to interview me or whoever the priest happens to be on the church's position of homosexuality. Now, when that happens, if it's me or whoever it is, we're going to explain that out of love, we believe in a certain way that God has encouraged us to live, not just with our sexuality, but with every aspect of his divine will. Now, if I have that coming, if it's me, and I go, oh boy, they're going to make fun of me in the papers, and people are going to come protest, and the parish council may not like it, and um, they may protest at my house. If I withdraw from that out of protection for myself, I am not standing up as the witness God has called me to be. So what I am supposed to do is stand up and no matter the cost, um, show my love and devotion for Christ by explaining what he would have me say. And with the assurance that no matter how I suffer, in the end, the reward is better than the suffering. Okay? Um, I'll give you a real example. A, a Catholic priest, a neighbor of, of ours, not too far from, from our church, um, had a very prominent member who lived a very prominent uh, homosexual lifestyle and in a public way, uh, put this priest in a very difficult position of not giving that person communion. And in the papers, there was mostly negative press against the priest. When he was doing just what he's called to do as a priest of the Catholic Church that has its own standards. So whether it's that kind of thing or... A moment of temptation where we're going to declare our allegiance either to God and his way, even if it's suffering by not engaging in sin, because that can seem to us as suffering, or no matter what the situation, in other words, when that, those moments of witness come forward to us, we should meet them with the joy of knowing whatever suffering is coming pales in comparison, can't even compare to the joy of having our names written in the book of life that's the only good ending is having our name written in the book of life i think you're muted deborah say it again we didn't hear you deborah unmute oh sorry that's it we just need to um and stay is stay strong and faithful and keep our eyes on christ yep and the faith in him says no matter what i suffer in this life in the relative short term of this life in the span of eternity it's going to pale in comparison and, and where the book is going to end we'll see this uh not this week uh, we'll, we'll start again next week on this is really what that looks like if you make that call, if you're willing to stand up and accept that relative short-term suffering, here's what it gets you. 
And this is a common theme, by the way, not just in the Bible. Um, you remember the book and the story, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? He has that moment towards the end where, you know, everyone else was going to steal the, the, the candy and give it to the, the evil candy maker. And, and even Grandpa Joe says, come on, Charlie, let's go. And Charlie resists that temptation, that momentary temptation, even what it would bring his, his family benefit in their poverty. And he comes back. And what's his reward? He gets, to, he gets the chocolate factory. He doesn't get a lifetime supply of chocolate. He gets the factory. The family moves in. In other words, there's always going to be this, yeah, there's, a, there's to do the right thing, to follow Christ is going to be some sort of suffering. Right? You've heard me preach about it. You've heard it all our lifetimes. To follow Christ is to pick up the cross. That's inescapable. What is open for uh, determination is what we're seeing here in this part of chapter 20. We all want our names written in the book of life, and there's only two ways to do it. One is martyrdom, and the other is that we go to our judgment, each one of us, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books of our life are going to be opened. And every aspect of our life that hasn't been confessed, all the positives, all the negatives, and how that is determined, we don't know. We're not going to tell God how he judges. We're just, what's given to us here is that the book's going to be opened and whatever we've done comes out. Now, I have one more question about that. What if there's what if there are things that we have completely forgotten? We truly have forgotten that, you know, we wronged, you know, we did something bad, you know, but we've tried to make a, you know, do the right thing and, and, and confess these sins on that, on that day. I know they're going to judge against that. So what are your chances that they know that you really forgot and you just weren't, being a stinker <laughs> well what what revelation 20 is saying is that those books will be open and we're going to hear about it what god's going to say about it we can't determine and and i think intentionally all we know of what has been revealed is what has been given in other words all we know is those are all going to be read everything we've ever done and if you read the New Testament, you know, I think we, we've all been, um, in a way, swayed and influenced by this common Protestant idea of the love and grace of God that doesn't take into account what we do. You know, right. you, 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 you confess Jesus is Lord and you, whatever, you make the statement. And in some of these threads of those traditions, what you do doesn't matter. And yet the Bible, the same Bible that they would claim that they believe only in the Bible, says that um, if I say raka to my brother, which is some sort of Hebrew insult, I am guilty of the Gehenna of fire. Oh, boy. It, he says that we're going to count for every idle word we speak. Not evil word. Every idle word. So the New Testament does not present what people commonly think of as this message of do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. 
Now, we do, of how course, about, rely on the grace of God. What's that, Alan? How about if we um, go to that person and are um, have, have made up or asked for the forgiveness for that individual? Or if what happens? A, when you repent, what happens? Get out the blotter. It's gone. But is yeah. it clear? But we, you, you go to we maybe if we didn't repent to God, but we repented to that the person say that we had a disagreement with or a yeah, falling this is, out. This with. is a great this is a great question because one of the arguments I hear against going to confession is some people say, Well, I just go to God directly, right? There's that. Other people will say, Well, I took care of it. Yeah. I insulted somebody and I apologized. Right? So that handles the part where they um, they sinned against the person and they went and they repented before that person. But what's the step that's missing? If that's all they do. They repent to God, asking for his forgiveness. Right. Now, so there's two if, people we got to ask forgiveness from. Not two people, but I mean, God yes. and that person. And that's, by the way, why one of the reasons why you confess to a priest. Uh, I'm not just there as a representative of God. In the earliest church, you confess to everybody. Mm -hmm. Because your sin was seen very clearly as both against the community and against God. So you had to repent before each of them. Brother John Name used to teach this in a very impactful way. If somebody did something that was, you know, particularly egregious, he would say to them, all right, I forgive you. God forgives you. Now, after Vespers, you need to confess to the, to the camp. And somebody would get up and they'd say, well, I was at the gimme shop. And when the lady turned around, I took an extra candy bar. And, you know, often they would break down in tears and all that. But it was this very important lesson for everybody saying, you know, we sin against each other. It's not just private between us or even between us and that person. If I am uh, sinful against somebody, even in private, that affects everybody. Father John, Bishop John used to tell this story of one time uh, he was at the rectory when they lived in New Kensington and they were living at the rectory at the church and there were two guys having a fight in the alleyway below their bedroom window next to the church. And that fight went on and they yelled at each other and screamed at each other. And they even came to blows for a while. Then the police came and it, it, it disturbed his night's sleep for several hours. And then he got up the next day and he was tired and he was, you know, confused in the service and his sermon wasn't all it could have been. He said, those guys don't know that their sin affected people sitting in the church that they were fighting outside of. They might have known it was a church there. But our, the effect of our sins goes far beyond where we think that effect goes. We can't control where it goes. You know, um, it's scientists tell us that this, the strongest hurricane that lands on the shores of America can begin with the flap of a butterfly's wing in Africa. Hmm. 
those little things, a little breeze through a valley that we don't even know exists, grows and develops and affects and interacts to the point where a category five hurricane slams into, you know, New Orleans or another coastal city. We don't know. We don't know the effects of our sins. So what do we do? We confess to God and we confessed in our case to the priest as a representative of everybody. Father, I have a question. You know, when uh, the disciples were with Christ and it was after they had been sent out and they came back and they were saying, wow, you know, even the demons are subject to us. And Christ said to them, um, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so that to me sounds like, uh, I mean, they were still alive with Christ right then and there. Um, and I guess I have always just thought that because he made that statement, rejoice because your names are written um, in heaven, that the faith that they had in Christ and the, and the relationship that they had with Christ was the thing that caused their names to be written in heaven. Yes. So when they go out and they preach and they're rejoicing that Satan has been overcome, the real cause of the rejoicing is, is not that on the negative side. It's the positive side. Right. Rejoice that your names are written because you accepted to join me in this work of, of salvation. Mm -hmm. And because you've joined me and you've aligned yourself with me and I'm the source of life, that's what you should rejoice about. Right. And, and it's again with, with, to our topic here, Every one of those, except for the Apostle John, the author of Revelation, was going to die a horrific death. Mm -hmm. And even John would die in exile. So it wasn't like he had it easy. Right. So there was a lot of suffering that, that would go along, <coughs> that would precede that rejoicing, or reju the reason for that rejoicing. So you can see where this idea of reframing relative suffering to relative benefit it's throughout the whole scriptures i mean you go back to genesis which we're going to see in the next chapter uh the heavenly jerusalem is sort of the the restoration of, of what we lost in the garden of eden um there's this idea of um um how do i say it like a just again like a restoration but for those who suffered in other words all they had to do in the garden of eden was don't eat from one tree and then from that because sin abounded now there's all kinds of things that 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 we have to struggle with because of our own sins and our and our desire to keep engaging in it but that suffering of what we call the spiritual life the ascetic life of turning away from sin, turning towards virtue. Father Ted's been talking about that on, on these Sunday night talks. All of that really is tough. But in the light of the judgment and the coming kingdom, it's, it's a no-brainer. 
It's that re-measuring re of what's a good decision here. So if, if you get nothing else out of this, just realize there's, that, there's those two ways. And so, again, we can't determine our martyrdom, and we shouldn't go seeking it. We should seek to be witnesses, but not seek death. That's suicide. And so in that case, we might be relegated to the other way. We might be stuck with not being able <laughs> to be martyred. Therefore, we better be careful what gets written in those books. <laughs> That's the idea. That's the idea. Oh, so I thank you, Father. I have to get off. Yeah, <laughs> we're all going to get right in here, but good to see you all. Thank you. I'm going, Keith and I are taking the clothes down to the oh, um, nice. school today. Give them our greetings. All righty. Thank you. We'll see you. <laughs> hey, yes. Just a real quick question, um, and this relates to like um, Bishop Anthony's message this past Sunday. Yeah. And when he was talking about that once we die, that we continue on uh, in, um, how did he put it? Um, that we continue to grow and uh, become more like God in eternity. Uh, there are still things to learn, still things to uh, grow in our own virtues and in Christian life beyond our own physical death, that and, the saints are doing that. And so I was just kind of wondering, do you know where, um, you know, what book or what um, thought, church father or how that particular idea um, what is expressed in something maybe that you've read or that yeah so saint paul talks about us going from glory to glory that's that's one of the main biblical passages that that refers to that idea um saint basil wrote something let me see if i can google the the name of it um he really goes into this in detail Um, it was just a real new thought to me and um, I don't know I've just always thought that you know we have this life to make a difference and, and with our works and all but it just seemed to indicate that that will continue on and I just I wanted to ask him about that but and maybe this yeah. is not place to ask no that. it's actually it's a really important point oh, I, because I know too. <laughs> yeah because in the western point of view salvation is in a sense surviving the judgment right so salvation because salvation is in that western mind a juridical thing we're sin we're guilty we deserve punishment christ pays the punishment we make it to the judgment and so the thought would be then, okay, well, we're in, so so what? There's nothing else to do. We just, you know, play our harps and, you know, float around. And so, but in the Orthodox sense, and I think there is a sense that this is in the Protestant consciousness to a degree, but it's not elaborated. What are we going to do? 
yes, I think there's this common idea of, of being the joy in the presence of God. That's I would think that's a common idea, whether it's articulated or not. That once if we're in the kingdom, if we're in heaven, we rejoice the presence of God, which we're going to see in the next chapter here coming up. But what do we do? In the Orthodox understanding, we're very specific. We worship. That's our natural response whenever we recognize the presence of God. We worship. One of the first hymns that we sing at almost every service is, Come, let us worship. Come, let us worship, Father, for God our King. Come, let us worship, Father, for Christ our King, and our God. We say it three times. Because we come to God, what's our natural response? To fall down and worship. But what does that do? When we worship God, we understand him more. We experience, we know him more. And we know that he knows us more. And that idea of a continual growth of the knowledge of God and the joy that all that brings, we don't see it as a static thing. We see it as growing. And, and here's the contrast in, in verse uh, 15, that they're thrown in, into the lake of fire and they're tormented day and night. So that you think about that continual ever growing torture, that's one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum can't just be, oh, it's really nice, or we don't suffer, or we see Christ, but in a static, unchanging way. It has to be, if, if the other side is a continually growing torture, the other side has to be continually growing glory of peace and joy and knowledge and experience. So, and again, as St. Paul says, to go from glory to glory. So it's not <laughs> static, it's growing, it's dynamic, only it's the opposite direction. Great, thank you. Yeah, it's but it's not in the sense, because I, I think some people could be confused by what he said to say, well, we'll continue to repent. That's not for the next life. What I think he was saying was, um, actually, I confirm this. If we take off the pressure of the limited moment of now and look at it in the span of eternity, it doesn't mean that we're not going to repent in the short term. What it means is the pressure of our limitation is changed by this different understanding. And I would even say that the encouragement to repentance is increased with the understanding of eternity. By taking off the pressure, and I would say the limitation of this moment Yes, it's the moment of choice, but what do we face it? We face it with the, hopefully, the perspective of eternity. And then if we are still struggling in our repentance, as long as we're in that struggle in the span of, of eternity, again, it sort of informs that process. What it doesn't say to us, though, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't say, it doesn't say it's okay to put it off. That's the, that's the deception of the, of the evil one. I think I've told the story of the demons that we're discussing, three of them. What, how should we trap the most humans in e evil? And one said food, one said sex. The other said, no, 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 those, those will get you some people. They'll get you a lot, but they don't get you everybody. What will get everybody is just convince them they have more time. 
So it's not an escape from the necessity of repentance. It just takes us into another understanding of keep that struggle going. Don't put it off. It doesn't say put off the struggle. But it, take off the pressure of I've got to do everything today, see my life as in the span of eternity, and then engage in that struggle. So it seems contradictory, but I don't think it actually is. And along with that, Father, one thing that Mother Gabriella um, shared years ago is that this life on earth is our rehearsal for heaven. Yes. Okay. So I, I always, uh, I appreciated that because it gives you, a, you know, more of a positive thing instead of. Yeah. Which know, is so why we worship the way we do. I mean, last night was the last night of our introduction orthodoxy class. And I gave them the tour of the church. And one of the things I said was, we build these churches and we adorn them as we do because we're practicing life in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So we find the best, closest reflection of that in the world today, which is what has developed as Orthodox Christian church architecture, design, and iconography. And then add into that the, the dynamic aspect of worship the music, the text, um, the, the liturgical movements, all of that reflects the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we have images of, of angels on the doors that the servers and deacons go in and out of? Why, why do you think those are angels? You ever thought about that? No. Is it because they serve in front of Every time we've seen images of, of, the, of heaven in, in Revelation, you'll notice an angel came, an angel went here, an angel went there. The angels are moving. They're back and forth to the throne. And so the servers are a reflection of that. So what do we put on those doors? Angels. They're the angelic he, beings bringing those messages back and forth. And, and we are too. I love, I love the cherubic hymn that we represent the, the cherubims right. and that's I, I just love that hymn <laughs> yeah it, it's why it's such an important hymn in the liturgy one of the most if not the most important hymns is that everything leads up to that point and if you think about it what's the liturgy the liturgy is the approach to the throne of god no less than what we just read about the throne in heaven that the earth and the sea fled from one of the things i told them last night was you know when we walk across the church no matter if you're in the altar area or in the narthex when you when you cross that middle you stop and you bow and you make the sign of the cross because the altar is the throne so and what you actually can't see from from the church mostly there actually is a throne behind the altar in our case it's it's the nicest chair back there it's not as big as the one out front, but that's the idea is, is, is that's the, the centrality of the liturgy and of the church so that there's where God is. And what do we do in the liturgy? We approach him step by step. We, we walk into the church. We say, blessed is the kingdom. We're announcing where we're headed. That's the destination, right? It's like announcing flight 325 for Chicago, now boarding, you know, blessed is the kingdom. That's where we're going. And what do we do? We bring all our petitions with us for the peace of the whole world, for those sick, 
and suffering, captive. We bring all those petitions to God. We sing his praises in the Psalms. And then we approach the throne and we sing, Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Lord, have mercy on us. We hear the proclamation from the throne in the sacred readings, the epistle and the gospel. And then what do we do? We sing the cherubic hymn. We who represent the cherubim and sing to the life-giving trinity the thrice holy hymn. Now lay aside all earthly cares and receive the king of all comes invisibly born by the angelic host. So it's, it's, it's heaven. Every liturgy. All right. Well, good to see you all. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Have a wonderful few days ago, and we'll see you this weekend. All right. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye.